Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bowra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. My guest in this episode uh, is someone who has experienced a lot in her 27 years. She is many things. She's an artist, an adventurer. She's neurodiverse. Uh, She's a a product of a broken home, but a loving family. She's an abuse survivor and passionate advocate for victims of sexual abuse. She's a former Australian of the Year. Uh, to some, she may be a bit of a troublemaker. And she's now a published writer, having just released her memoir, the intriguingly titled The Ninth Life of a Diamond Miner. If you haven't worked it out already, my guest is, of course, Grace Tame. Hello, Grace. Good day, Tim. How are you going? Going well, thanks. How are you? Yeah. I'm always good. You're on a whirlwind book tour at the moment, aren't That's you? Correct. How's it going? Yeah. Oh, look, it's it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose you've uh, you've gotten somewhat used to this whirlwind pace of life uh, over the last eighteen months or so, haven't you? Yeah, I just roll with it. Yeah. Just one step at a time. I've got a bit of a marathon mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've listed a few of the things there that uh, that people might use to describe you, but I, I feel like I've only just scratched the surface, and certainly you get a a really complex uh, understanding of who you are and what you've been through reading your book. But, um, you know, you've had a, particularly the year of 2021 as the Australian of the Year, uh, a year of, of, of intense scrutiny on you and people looking at you through a magnifying glass. But how do you see yourself? I'm a terrible ballroom dancer. You forgot. <laughs> well, I couldn't list them all, could I? Um, I mean, people want to put a tag uh, on people all the time. How do, how do you see yourself I just see predominantly? Myself, I just see myself as a human being, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm only 27 and uh, I, uh, I'm i always reflecting on myself just as I'm reflecting on life and uh, I'm always trying to, you know, improve and and uh, learn and, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. how. I don't think that anybody can really fully get objectivity on, on, on themselves. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a huge existential question that you've just dropped <laughs> I've, on me. I've started Tim. off with a, with <laughs> yeah, a just tricky start one. Yeah, the, start the morning, it's, uh, you know, yeah. early in the morning. <laughs> Bit of self-reflection. <laughs> yeah, g'day, Grace. What's the meaning of life? Can yes. you just settle that one for us? And, uh, I'll also, give you some you time know. to think about it. We'll come back to that at the end, perhaps. <laughs> Let's talk about your time as Australian of the Year, uh, which has finished up, of course. Um, fair to say you attracted... Uh, quite a few headlines, uh, a lot of commentary uh, over that year, perhaps more than just about any other Australian of the Year I can think of in recent times. How do you reflect on that 12-month period of your life now that it's it's finished? 
Well, so much happened in sh- in such a short space of time that it's it's uh, you know I'm still processing so much of it because it it was um, it was a sort of rapid fire uh, experience um, for myself and for you know so many people that were close to me around me that came along for the ride you know especially mm. Max and we were just sort of um, moving um, with it uh, as it as it rolled along and and we we both did our best you know we were two two twenty six year old kids that you know. To, to and to say that we were thrown in the deep end on the twenty fifth of January twenty twenty one is a colossal understatement. You know, we were we were living in a share house. You know, we were sleeping on a mattress on the floor, mm. uh, and then you know, next thing we knew, we we were um, just presented with this experience that there was no guidebook for, and uh, we we just approached it with the the enthusiasm that we approach everything else that we do um, with a, a determination to do. Um, you know, to, 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 to not let each other down to not, and to not let the cause down. I think that that was the most important thing, you know, like I can't speak for, uh, uh, the entirety of the, the community of, of survivors of child sexual abuse. And it's one in four, um, girls, one in six boys that is abused before their 18th birthday. And that's the, phenomenal. Isn't yeah. It? And the spectrum of, of, uh, experiences, uh, of child sexual abuse is as vast as, um, the the experience of, of life itself, you know, um, it, whether you're a First Nations person, a person of colour, um, you know, whether you live with a visible disability, you know, I can speak to the experience of being neurodiverse, as you said, I'm, I'm, I'm autistic, um, you know, um, or you're a refugee, a migrant, a low-income earner, um, you know, a member of the LGBTQIA plus community or you know, somebody with um, another systemic disadvantage, um, that means that your uh, path to justice is even harder, if not impossible. You know, um, it, there's, there's, there's so many other factors to consider. And, and, and again, like I can't speak to all of those things and I've never, never claimed to, to be able to. And, and one single person should, should not have to shoulder that. And this is why I encourage people to, to continue listening to each and every um, survivor experience because in each survivor experience, even if they are very similar, um, you know, that there's going to be key sort of learning teaching examples that will um, fill in the colour in this grey sort of myst- myst- mysterious experience, especially something like grooming, which is so inherently complex. And, you know, we are seeing that. And, you know, when I look back uh, to answer your question, you know, when I look back as an observer of that time, you know, not as a participant, um, and when I do reflect on that experience, you know, it's a, like, like life itself, you know, anything that, that is uh, an adversarial thing or that is a controversial thing, it's always going to be a bit of a Rorschach test. Mm. It's always going to produce um, circumstances uh, in which people are going to see things from different angles and it's going to... Um, it's going to sort of, I guess, make people sort of double down in their sort of conditioning. Um, and, uh, um, but, but by the same token, um, it's going to produce unique opportunities for learning and growth, um, and, um, sort of positive opposition, if you will. And I think that that's what, what I take away from that experience is Mm. that, um, so much light and and hope came out of that, um, you know. And we we have we have done so much collectively in recalibrating the um, balance of power in favour of survivors. You know, these people 
um, again, across the board, not just people who, um, you know, like traditionally have held the, the, the narrative. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's people who, who, who were going to take their stories to the grave. They're standing up and going, no, these myths aren't true. I can just like anybody else because survivors are just people. They're not these, uh, you know, narrative tropes that have previously been called, you know, whatever it is, like damaged goods or whatever. They can just come forward, even if it's just to a friend or trusted family member and, and, and step into the space and talk about these, um, you know, these horrific experiences, but also these experiences that don't have to define them and shatter this shame and redirect it to where it belongs, and that is to the perpetrators of these crimes. And that has been so, so, like I just get, every time I talk about it, the hair stands up on my arms and, you know, it's like rocket fuel and I just like, I'm sitting down right now, but I just want to leap out of my seat and just like, Mm. you know, start just like... (laughs) Get back up on the stage and 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 I just like It's just like, it is, it's, 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 you know, it's 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 fighting stuff, and and I I mean that in a in the positive sense. You know, like there's just an army of people out there that is just growing um, by the day. You know, and I have these electrifying moments. Like, you know, I retold the story that I told um, in an interview that aired on the project recently about you know this hug that I had with a man who hadn't hugged anybody for ten years before a moment that I shared a speech. And I sh- I retold that story recently in Townsville, and a man whose name again I won't shared because I won't identify him, but a man came up to me and he held out his pinky finger and we had a hug. You know, it's this domino effect of people one by one by one, this chorus of voices. And I, you know, quote myself again, it's just getting louder. It's getting louder and louder. And who's it drowning out? It's drowning out the perpetrators. And of course they don't like it. Again, this Rorschach test, of course the perpetrators are going to resist, but we're drowning them. And I take it from that, although your time as Australian of the Year is done, you are not done yet. <laughs> Hell <laughs> no, I'm never going to be done. never going to be done. I'm never going to be done. And, and, and my role will shift, you know, naturally, you know, and, and, and I will, um, you know, I, I do a lot of stuff behind the scenes, you know, and there's lots of people who are working alongside me. You know, and we've, we've, um, we've funded uh, over 50 legal cases for survivors through um, the Grace Tame Foundation um, you know, we've got Paris, who's our psychologist, who does incredible work. You know, and we're not a huge team. We've just carved out a niche. We've seen specific things that we want to we want to achieve, and that's that, that's the thing about change. And that's a myth there. You know, like I think a lot of people think you need to go big or go home, and bigger isn't always better. You know, it's being clear and and specific in what you want to do, and and change is um, a, like it's a marathon, not a sprint. And if you're very clear with your goals, if you if you achieve those small things, the rest will follow. It'll follow suit. And we're, you know, so we're just, we're just going one step at a time. We're going, okay, if we do this, then the next thing will will present itself in in due course. And, and, and it's, it's really like, that's what moves me. It's, it's who we're working for, as in like working for the survivors and who we're working alongside. That's what, that's what keeps me going, you know, and and all of the hate, (laughs) it just doesn't, it doesn't even stick. Like, yeah, okay. I'd be lying if I said some of this stuff doesn't hurt me because I've got a conscience, I've got a heart and, you know, and like some of it's just vile, but at the same time, it doesn't, it doesn't come close to you from what you're No, but it also does, it's no match for the, for the love and like those moments where I literally connect and hold the hands of survivors and hug the survivors. No, no hater has actually ever had the balls or the 
vagina, <laughs> I should say, um, to come up to me and actually say it to my face. And that says everything that you need to know about the cowardice of people who, yep. who think that they um, can, you know, take mm. away from, from, the, from, the, from the sincerity of positivity. Yeah. You, you certainly forced uh, a lot of people to have some, some uncomfortable conversations, conversations they've either put off, shelved, ignored, <laughs> just simply have not wanted to have for, for a long, long time. Are, are, you, are you satisfied with um, the progress that you're able to make in the, in the 12 or so months uh, in your time as the Australian of the Year? Being well, able to open the door and, and have I mean, that I, I stand on the shoulders of giants. The progress is is, a, is the, always the work of the of the collective. Um, I'm I'm definitely I'm proud of I'm proud of Australia. I'm, I'm yeah. yeah. So I I mean to, to look to look to look back on it. it, it yeah, it, you're it certainly means, not the only one means, in the conversation. It, well, it means you? looking back. It to to reflect on it. It means looking back and and taking into in, and taking into account um, the work that enabled me to step onto the platform at the time that I did yeah. um, and for the message to land the way that it did, you know, yeah. because it's one thing to have a message, it's, a, it's another thing for it to be received. And so I'm grateful um, to, to all the supporters who've supported the message and supported the cause and supported the the survivors who've, who've come forward as well um, because they've needed the support to come forward and they've needed that. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the, the support, um, and the, the open arms, you know, uh, figuratively with which, uh, this, this sort of, um, yeah, this message has been met mm. and yeah, that make it just, it just sort of blows me away, you know, because I, I still, it's in my, it's in my memory, it's in my recent memory, you know, 11 years ago when I disclosed the experience and I, I had it in my mind, you know, I was thinking like, there's, there's this person, I didn't have the vocabulary to explain quite what I was explaining because I was, you know, such is the cognitive dissonance that underpins grooming that I was in, in some ways still defending this man who had abused me and I didn't know what grooming was. I didn't um, understand that wasn't in my vernacular. Uh, it wasn't in the vernacular, I think, of the, the general public. Um, you know, terms like uh, gaslighting weren't either. Um, they weren't these big buzzwords that they are now. They weren't dominating the, the zeitgeist. And so when I did report to the police, you know, I was only giving sort of fragmented, um, you know, piecemeal sort of um, uh you know, bits of what I could in my also traumatised state actually divulge, uh, you know, and, and that's really sad because, you know, if I sat down now and gave a statement, for example. It'd be very different. Oh, and it, it would be days and days long as opposed yep. to four hours in a room with two officers and no support person and with my two parents who one of whom was hearing it for the first time ever uh, on a TV screen, you know, and so... Like it's just yeah, so much has changed so in much. eleven years, yeah. and what was what resulted from that? Like, and that was that was the only chance I had actually to give an account of what happened. And then, who had the last say was a calculating man who I since found out. You know, I got I've been contacted since then by a number of uh, you know um, women 
who also attended collegiate, who alleged um, abuse, you know, like assault and grooming by this man, whose stories very much parallel my own experience of him. And that is really confronting to hold that space. You know, um, I spoke to, to a, um, the investigator uh, at TAS Police the other day who's been working with one of those women for two years, um, you know, and it's it's so infuriating because, like, I am the only one on the battlefield um, taking the bullets, but we all know and, you know, I've spoken with the collegiate current collegiate principal as well who's also been approached by these women, you know, and one of the stories is in the book, but there's another, there's another woman who has a very similar story and so... And then there's another, you know, there's, I think there's, um, there's at least, uh, like there's at least five others. And so it's just like, uh, it takes time, doesn't because, it? But they're more historic, you know, yeah. it's just so, it just so happened that like, you know, I, I'm kind of an anomaly because usually it takes 23.9 years. That's the average yep. before a survivor shares their experience. It's a long and so, time, isn't it? And, and, and in that time, what happens is, you know, like, well, a few things, um, you know, memory, um, obviously, um, can be affected and that's not to say survivors should not be believed or taken seriously. Um, but obviously time in that, that, in that time has lapsed, but then, you know, evidence is another thing, you know, historic evidence. Um, but you know, there was all this, there was all this evidence, um, you know, to back me up, you know, one of the things that I got back was this envelope full of hair and even I was like for me, even for me, that was a moment where I was like, I remember standing there in my uniform and I'd been given back these things from the police that they assumed were mine. And even I, as the person who had been sexually abused by this man multiple times, you know, he admitted to up to um, 30 counts of, of um, you know, sexual intercourse, in other words, rape of a minor. And I'm standing there and I'm holding this envelope full of blonde hair and I'm going, is this my hair? Like, it, you know, like I'm literally like, I can't even, mm. it's, it's that, it's that confronting that you, you in as children, especially, but as, as adults as well, who are abused, you invent these narratives just to make yourself to make feel safe. Like you just go, yep. I, what, bleh, like, bleh, you know, what the hell is this? Like, is this even real? And that is. That is evil's one of evil's greatest weapons is that it is so pointlessly cruel that so many people, even when it is staring you right in the face, you just do not want to believe in it because it is that, like, that awful. That awful. That it because it it brings into question um, the possibility that life has no meaning and no like and no purpose. Yeah. And people do not want to confront those existential um, horrors. Yeah, you know, that's, it's that's as big as it's as big as it gets. Big as it gets, it's as yeah. big as going. God might not be there, you know. And I personally, <laughs> I personally am not a, a woman of of um, organized dogmatic faith, but I'm very spiritual, you know. And I've had you know moments of as you you know you've read the book like where I'm just like that's that's weird, mm. you know. <laughs> like and yeah. I. You know, practice yoga, and and one of my favourite principles of of the um, sort of yogic practice, if you will. I don't know if you um, have ever done. Have you done yoga? Done a bit of yoga. Done a bit of yoga. Yeah. Well, have you 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 would have been led led by a you know a, a 
teacher yes. would have taken you through the postures. I definitely needed a teacher. Yes. <laughs> and each one yeah. of the poses ends with like it's, you know, there's Shavasana and, you know, Bakasana. And so all of them end in that asana. And asana actually means literally the, the translation from Sanskrit is um, seat. Asana means seat. And the, the idea uh, in that regard is that you change your seat um, so you literally are changing your perspective mm. all the time so that you're seeing the world from a different physical sp- standing point. Yeah. And I, I like, I love that because it yeah. does. It's like, it, well, it's not, I mean, it's not forcing you, but it's, it is in a way it's challenging you to be in a, in a different position. And as you know, as flexible as you can make yourself through these <laughs> different postures, they're uncomfortable a lot of the time. So it's putting you in an uncomfortable position. And I like to carry that outside of the, um, the physical practice yep. is that sometimes you need to get uncomfortable. Well, you've certainly with your, had to with your perspective things from an uncomfortable position. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we need to take a break, Grace. After that, I really want to talk about this, uh, incredible childhood that you had, uh, growing up with this amazing extended family, uh, in Hobart. Tasmania. So I'll get you to talk more about that after we take a break. Grace Tame is our special guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, the 2021 Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, is our special guest in this episode. Uh, Grace, I want to talk about your um, this incredible childhood that you had uh, in, in a moment. But just I just want to, um, just before we wrap things up, I suppose, with uh, the events of 2021, I don't want to dwell on it because so many people uh, had something to say about it. There were so many... Um, commentary pieces written about it um, by people who probably weren't there and have probably never met you, but had a lot to say about that famous sideways glance you gave the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Um, what's your what's your take on it? Can you can you give us your version of how that went? Because it, it, it just became this moment, didn't it? It got magnified into something huge. Oh, look, oh, I had something in my eye. <laughs> the sun was really bright and I got sensitive retinas. No, no, look, honestly, I, um. Did you shake your head though when you heard, when you saw some of the, just the volume of stuff that was written about it? Look, I, I have, I've said my, my piece on this so many times and yep. yeah, he, he was to me as I said in the book, a minor character in the mm. grand scheme of things, yeah. actually. Um, yeah. And it 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 ultimately proved a really powerful point, I think, that um, uh, about the landscape of um, I guess um, not just Australia, but the world. In terms of the distorted, distorted sense of proportion and perspective, uh, you know that that was a matter of seconds mm. that I, you know, frowned at at Scott, uh, and you know he revealed himself long before I was even named Australian of the Year, and. 
you know, I. <laughs> you just, you reacted in that moment. Well, also I think that, you know, like being true to oneself and being true to one's purpose is not about being liked. Rudeness is subjective. Hypocrisy is self-defeating. But what's not subjective is corruption. Um, what's not subjective is uh, um, you know uh, betrayal of the people um, and uh, you know that man was complicit in uh, covering up an alleged rape inside of Parliament House. And, you know, I, I'm i a pretty, um, you know, easygoing and down-to-earth person. I really am. You know, I think there have been a lot of people, like you said, you know, projected lots of things onto me as a person who don't know me, projected a lot of things onto my face. <laughs> and I've got, you know, I've got a high tolerance for a lot of things. I've got a high tolerance for pain. I've got a high... High tolerance for a lot of things. What I don't tolerate is um, people who are just in it for themselves. Um, and I actually, you know, I'm not, um, as some people would say, you know, a, a labour mouthpiece. Um, actually, if you read my book, somebody who doesn't think that um, things uh, map neatly into, you know, right v left um, or um, good v bad. Um, life just doesn't work like that, you mm. know, and thinking that, you know, one party is, is the way to go. Um, you know, it's just, it just doesn't it's like life is yep. com complex and so yep. are people, yep. um, you know, but I just, I really, I, I personally couldn't, um, knowing what I knew, um, and, uh, representing the cause that I represent, uh, I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't fake it. You couldn't fake a I couldn't, smile. I couldn't fawn. I couldn't fawn. I couldn't fake it in that moment. I would have been, I w like if anything else, you know, I wouldn't have been being, I wouldn't have been being true to myself, but I would have been, you know, I would have been, I would have been um, letting down, um, you know, the people who, who matter most to me. I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't know Scott. I've got no loyalty to him. Um, and, you know, I, I have, I have worked alongside so many experts uh, and advocates, survivor advocates in this sector, and uh, the the crumbs of sympathy, the crumbs of support, you know, the fake, the fake support, you know, these announcements, this this bullshit, you know, and the just like the, you know, the that that speech, you know, dropping that word ritual abuse and all this stuff that just like. How could I do that? How could I do that to people? It just, like, okay, yeah, people are going to say that I'm rude. I'd rather be rude, you know, and, 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 and hated for being rude than, than liked for being fake. Mm. You know, I don't, it, it, at the end of the day, you know, like, honestly, seriously, like, worse things have happened to me. And, and I'll, I'll move on because yeah. the people that matter, the, the opinions that matter to me 
are the ones of my family and friends, yep. you know, and they don't recognise me in the media. And, yep. and I, like, I don't have Google alerts. I don't know how to set that sort of stuff up. I don't, I, I, I like, you know, and, and I don't, I don't miss social media. I don't, I like, it, I, I've got a 12 year old brother. And so long as he doesn't call me rude, I'm, I'll be all right. Yep. You know, he matters. He, his opinion matters most to me and he thinks I'm all right, you know, and he's, he's my hero. Let's talk about your extended family. You go into vivid detail in your book about these amazing characters that you grew up with. You know, the, these, these aunties particularly. Yeah. They all sound individually um, They're amazing. amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, you, uh, unfortunately, as so many kids find themselves, product of a, of a broken home. Your mum and dad separated when you were pretty young. But it yeah. still sounds like you had a lot of, a lot of love and connection around right. you. Yeah. You know, many of them on the same street yeah. growing up. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it sounds almost postcard having this beautiful, big, uh, crazy family around you all the time. I, I must say, when I picked up the book, I wasn't expecting it to be um, as uplifting in parts uh, as it was. But particularly in that section, you know, it, it, it sounded amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think life by its very nature is, you know, we, we all experience, um, you know, joy and, mm. and pain. Yep. It's uh, unpredictable. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, some things we, we, we can't choose, other things we can. And, you know, s- you know, some, sometimes we just have to allow ourselves to sit with, sit with pain. And I think that it's, um, you know, I, th- I think that's easier said than done when people say like, oh, you know, we've got all got a choice and all that sort of stuff. Sometimes it's just shit, you know, and we've just got to go, all right, okay, mm. I, I'm allowed to, to feel that pain. And that's not a self-pity thing. That's yep. just a, that's just an acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, trauma especially is an unpredictable beast that is not a force of logic. It is a, it is a force, you know, and a highly researched force of biology that, you know, affects um, the animal kingdom, uh, you know, unanimously. And so um, to allow oneself the time to process it um, without resisting it and actually costing oneself more energy is actually, um, you know, the safest thing to do. Yep. But then joy, um, by the same token, is also, you know, like unpredictable and like my favourite thing to do above all else is laugh. Uh, you know, I love, love to laugh and I love to laugh with my family um, yep. more than anything else. And it sounds like they gave you great <laughs> they space did, to they do did. that. They did. We all have a very weird sense of humour. <laughs> We've got a very, um, I've got a bleak sense of humour, dark sense of humour. Um, no, I... Yeah, so my mum is one of, well, actually, technically nine sisters. She's got four full sisters and four half sisters, and she's the she's the youngest of the the five full sisters. Uh, and when she was born, the eldest Shelley was still actually five years old. Mum mm-hmm. was born in December um, of nineteen sixty four, and Shelley then had a um, sixth birthday in February the following year, nineteen sixty five, and. Uh, yeah, so, uh, and the five sisters, uh, between the five sisters, there's uh, 11 children um, and of the 11 cousins, of which I'm one, um, there's eight girls. And at one point, uh, most of the sisters uh, lived um, on the one street in, in a um, suburb of, of Hobart's uh, eastern shore um, called Seven Mile Beach. And... Yeah, we just spent a lot of like you just know, in and out of each other's houses. Yeah, and, yeah, and yep. just uh, I, I, you know, I especially remember you know the summer school holidays or you know around Christmas time, just just having you know 
so many times, you know, down at Seven Mile Beach on boogie boards and, uh, you know, playing in the sand and, you know, burying each burying each other until, like, it was just only our, our heads, you know, and just, just you know, just just really. And, and we were the last generation before, um, you know, uh, phones and iPads and things like that. So we were, we were being, you know, really resourceful with our playtime and, and um, you know, we were, we were spending a lot of time um, really, you know, really just, 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 just playing with, mm. with like, you know, like, yeah, it, it just, yeah. I look, yeah. I look back on those times and, and as, as, um, as difficult as, as some of the circumstances of my upbringing were, you know, um, going between two, two quite different, uh, dynamics, you know, um, you know, as difficult as that was for, for a kid, especially who's neurodiverse and, and was sort of just having to, to fit in, um, you know, the, the joy that, um, was uh, that sort of counteracted that um, was something that I really lent into quite heavily and I still lean into now, you know, and I'm really close with each of my cousins, especially the ones that are around my age group, you know, my cousin Eloise, who, um, you know, I still run with, um, she's about four years older than me, but that sort of age gap's been swallowed now that we're, you know, all in our like, you know, late twenties, early thirties. And my cousin Maddie as well, who was um, only, you know, a year above me in, in school. And we, we went to the same primary school, uh, you know, and my cousin Millie, who's a year, she's a year below me, um, same sort of thing. And, and my cousin Griffin, who's only three days older than me, he was born on Christmas Day and we call it Griffmas in our family <laughs> for that reason. And, you know, Christmas times are always just a hoot, you know, we're just always laughing and, and uh, you know, Max and I hosted Christmas last year. We just thought, oh, well, you know, well, well how could we possibly, you know, we've just capped off our stress. Um, yeah. We'll just host Christmas. We'll just have, you know we just have 20 something members of the family over, you know, and just couldn't possibly sure. be, you know, but we're just like, we're, we're pretty, um, low maintenance humans, you know, just, we, we don't seem to, you know, just, just everyone just brings a dish, you know, we'll just get some tables together. Some, we just went to shiploads and just got a whole bunch of tinsel and just, you know, just, just ma- went just, for just, it. We just, just, we just pimped the place out, just jazzed <laughs> it all up, just got a tree and, you know, just. Off just had went. fun, yeah. Just like you know, buy everything from Kmart. Just yeah, yeah. Why you why you went? Why you went? Ho ho um, ho. There, obviously, you had some 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 challenges through those years as well. Not just with your your mum and dad, but you had your first um, episode of abuse at the age of, of right, six. Yeah. You also had um, undiagnosed um, autism and ADHD. I'll, we we might take a break. I'll get you to describe. Um, or to tell us your thoughts on that as well, right after we take a break, if that's all right, Grace. Yeah, sure. uh, inspiring stories with Grace Tone. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. We are hearing the inspiring story of Grace Tame, uh, who is well known uh, in this country as a survivor of sexual abuse uh, and a fierce campaigner for justice and for rights for victims of abuse. Um, Grace, can we just briefly touch on the horrible chapter in your life? At the age of six, I mean, a lot of people would know of the chapter in your teenage years, you know, 15 at the hands of your 15, 58-year-old maths teacher. Your first encounter, though, uh, as a six-year-old, how did you how did you get through that as such a youngster, having to, having to deal with that? Well, 
when I was when I was six, I mean, you know, by virtue of the experience of being a child, um, you know, you witness lots of things that uh, you don't realise are wrong or as wrong as um, you know they are until you're much older. So I I suppressed that experience, and it resurfaced in uh, you know in fragmented ways. Uh, uh, randomly, um, when I was, t- when I was 10, I was camping with my cousin Eloise and, uh, two of my friends, Lucy and Rosie, and, uh, something must have, uh, activated, uh, that memory in part. And I s- sort of started talking about it, not realizing, uh, you know, again, that it was as inappropriate as it was. And my cousin Eloise, who is, as I said, about four years older than me, was sort of encouraging me. She said, you've got to tell this to your mother. Um, but also, uh, it was something that, um, when I was, when I was 15 and, uh, in school, we were learning about sex in health class. That's when it really started to, uh, to, resurface in a more disturbing and jagged and irrepressible way, uh, in sort of like really sharp kind of like jagged, um, uh, you know, memories. Mm. Um, and, uh, I remember also it coincided with, um, a relapse of anorexia the year before when I was 14. Uh, and I was being taught by the man who would have go on to groom and abuse me, um, that, uh, you know, I was, I was really struggling, um, with, with anorexia and I was hospitalized for six weeks. Um, I got down to about 40 something kilos, like 42 kilos or something. Um, you know, I'm probably about six, six, seven kilos heavier mm. than I, uh, heavier than that now. Um, and yeah, I remember that being a big, big thing. And also um, it coincided with the realisation that um, another person close to me had also experienced this very similar incident. Um, and I now know, um, we now know that there were four of us who were also abused by this same person in a very similar way. Um, and so we were all sort of like coming to terms with this at a sort of similar, um, at, you know, similar ages in our life. Um, sort of for similar reasons, I suppose, because those are the real formative years. You know, you're in high school, um, you're going through these hormonal changes, everyone's sort of experimenting, um, and these concepts are being taught to you and framed in a context um, where you are, you're realising these sorts of things. And so it was, it was sort of like bubbling up and coming out in really weird ways. Mm. And that was really confronting for me. So, you know, how, how I dealt with it was you know, like there is no guidebook. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's a testament to the malevolence um, and evil of this man that he would then knit that experience into his own conspiracy. But it is also actually quite a common thing for perpetrators of child sexual abuse to do that, to prey on vulnerable children who have prior abuse histories, because, they know that for children, relationships are life and death. Um, and they um, know that it also makes disclosure more difficult if they then, um, like children then have to disclose other 
fragments of abuse um, and they also know that children are, are you know, less likely to, to disclose abuse um, wherein they have to disclose, you know, um, uh, abuse that's perpetrated by other people that might be close to them, um, that they don't want to throw under the bus. Um, there's lots of layers to it. They also pick on people who've already been traumatised because they're easier to activate into a state of fear. There's all these sorts of layers to it. So it was, yeah, it was particularly calculated. And also um, Max was reading a book recently um, about autism and the sort of the visual um, aspects of it. So um, one of the things that this perpetrator of the, of the sexual violence against me when I was um, 15, mm-hmm. so the teacher who groomed me, actually, it's quite, it's quite obvious that he groomed me through the year that, that he taught me when I was 14. Um, you know, it, 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 he probably knew that I was autistic. So Max was reading the book and he goes, yeah, he probably, that's why he probably used those visual, visual cues when he took you up to the science block um, and pulled out the card. He pulled out a card and, and on one side it says yes, said yes, and on the other side it said no. Because what this perpetrator actually did was he, he recreated what I had at one point disclosed to him before any abuse took place. I, I, he recreated that incident that I had experienced when mm. I was six years old. I, I had um, at the point where I thought he was just a safe teacher I had told him about this abuse. You thought he was, you described him previously as you thought he was funny. Yeah, I thought he was funny, but everyone thought he was funny. Like he was, he was someone that in the year 12 review at the end of 2008, the year 12s made a joke. Like one of, one of the um, year 12 actors answered a phone that rang on the stage. She picked it up and she goes, oh, Mr. Bester, it's for you. It's God. She says she's black. Like not only was he known to be this funny man, but he was also known to be inappropriate. You know, he was known to make sexist jokes, racist jokes. And it was like something that all the staff laughed at as well. Like his inappropriateness was part of the fabric of the school. And so when he did push the boundaries, it was something that you just were so desensitized to. You just went, oh, that's Mr. Bester. And also like, you know, my father was a high school teacher. And so for me, you know, not only were men just safe, it was teachers that were safe. You know, like on Monday night in Hobart when I did the talk uh, for the Hobart um, book launch, you know, my grade six teacher was there. He was a mentor to me. You know, children should not have to question whether teachers are safe. Teachers should be your safe mentors, regardless of whether they're men or women. Mm. You know, we shouldn't be having this victim-blaming narrative of like, oh, you know, like you, you know, girls should, like Bettina aren't saying, oh, girls should have to think about that. I wasn't being provocative to this man. You know, I was, I was a child. Like he was asking me if I had thought about drawing myself naked. Like, I'm sorry. No, I, I hadn't ever thought about drawing myself naked. I was 15. I didn't actually show any interest to towards boys at school. I remember being so frigid that when we were having the sex talks in health that I got under the desk and poked my fingers in my ears. That's the kind of person that I was, you know. I was I was a class clown, but that was a mask, you know. I was a autistic kid who used humour as a defence mechanism, as a mask to get through. Mm. And, you know, yeah, I liked Monty Python, but I didn't necessarily understand the... The, the, the sexual innuendo, like I just, 
I just rolled with it because that that was what I part did. Of mask. It was part of the mask, and I often put my foot in it. Like I think people would probably realize that when I'm, you know, like <laughs> put into situations where I'm like I'm having to think on my feet constantly. I'm, you know, like and 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 I just I just go with it. And of course, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm a human being. I'm 27 for crying out loud. I'm just trying to live my life, and like you know, that's fine. But just you know, Jesus. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's um, a lot. Just before we, we we take another break, can I ask you about your um, your um, undiagnosed autism and ADHD? You were 20 or so when you were finally diagnosed. But reflecting back on those younger years, you talk about in the book, there was a moment that stood out for me. You said, uh, you know, your your quirks uh, were met uh, were more likely met uh, with a smack rather yeah. than patience. And you've just mentioned masking behaviours there. Um, getting a diagnosis finally, how did that, did that change your perspective at all on your childhood and, and, and how you got through it? Yeah. I look and I don't, I don't necessarily just like, I don't like refer to myself as being autistic or, mm. or having, you know, any kind of neurodivergence. I think those, those labels are helpful to an extent, but I don't subscribe to labels. I don't, yep. you know, I, I, I think they Again, they can be helpful, but so, I don't. So being don't, diagnosed, for instance, as a youngster, wouldn't necessarily have changed your experience as a child. Oh, I think I think it probably would have for the people. Look, I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know, I think in every, I think everyone's experience is different. I worry mm. that perhaps back then it would have, um, you know, the because uh, you know, I was a child, perhaps it would have, you know, like like I don't know who's to say, who's to say, you know. Um, what would have happened, uh, you know, perhaps there would have been, you know, more control put on, you know, you know, yeah, around you, you the education. Yeah, you might have different therapy uh, programs. Yeah, I don't know. And behavior I, modification type, who, whatever. Who knows? Yeah. You can say, um, I think, yeah, perhaps now, it, like it, help, it helps me understand a little bit about, about myself. But again, I'm, I, I, I don't believe in, I don't believe in absolutes. I think it's helpful in that it helps me again. It helps me understand, and I, I, um, I do identify as being autistic, and I def like I definitely am. Like it's just it's too, you know. Like I, I, I know, and my, you know, my my, I do not think or behave in a linear way. I just never have, and. When I found out that I was autistic, and certainly in reading the like the resource material um, that I uh, that I do now, um, you know, and and knowing also too, but that no two autistic people are, are the same, just as no two people are the same, um, you know, it, it's it's really useful, uh, you know. But you know, I, I take everything with a grain of salt. But you know, like <laughs> the way that I think, you know, it's like when I have a thought. <laughs> You probably realise this when I talk, is that it's like game fishing. Have you ever, like, gone tuna fishing? No. Oh, my gosh. But it's like, you know, you can, especially when I have, like, a big thought, for example, like, it's like, you know, you, like, get a thought and it's like, it's like the tuna can be, like, it can go, you know, it can go sometimes for, like, over an hour, you know, yeah. and I've just got to try to reel it in. make sure, like, and it could, you know, and, I, and, like, it definitely, like, it'll come back. Yeah. It'll come back. I just got to make sure that it doesn't get, like, I reel it in and it's got a big chunk missing, that, like a seal's got it or something. You know, I'm just going to make sure that I land it. Yeah. I land it. But get it's, it back in the boat. You know, like, or, or another analogy that I often give is that it's like, you know, like you've seen the luge, 
you know, my neural pathways are that like carved out, you know, like, and I get in, I, if I get in a thought pattern, it is, I'm like, I'm in my, I'm in my luge suit and I'm like, I'm off and I'm like, you're just flying down, you know, just, just a pathway and, you know, but I'll, I'll come back around, um, you know, but, but I just, I just, I'm not, I'm just not straight line. I just, I just can't. And I, and, but you can't force that. And, and, um, I've found often, like I found throughout my life that, um, other neurodiverse people are drawn to me and by the, you know, and, and vice versa. And, and, uh, I'm, you know, most comfortable around fellow neurodivergent people and, uh, that, you know, in those in those times, you know, we, we often don't have to speak. There's this sort of just like unspoken, um, innate language um, that 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 transcends um, other you know traditional forms of communication, and it's really beautiful. Uh, and the way that we see the world uh, can teach other people, I think, neurotypical people, um, so much. And rather than forcing people to conform who are different, just appreciating that there's, you know, you don't have to do that. Mm. And it's not, it's not scary. And, you know, it's, it's just different. Just yep. as, you know, all, all people are different. All those different yoga poses that you were. Exactly. So there you different go. Seats, different seats, different perspectives. Different asanas. Yeah. I was listening. There you go. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> and we came back around and we, we landed. Did. Exactly. We landed. Exactly. We, we got the tuna the back tuna. in the boat. Yeah. No Grace, seal butts. Let's take another break. We've got so much more to get through. I mean, this whole um, chapter of your life, uh, from your late teens where you went and lived in the States. I mean, there's a lot to get through in that oh, as well. We'll, we'll do our best. Madness. This is Inspiring Stories. Grace Tame is our guest. Back with more right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is Grace Tame, who has just published uh, an incredible memoir called The Ninth Life of a Diamond Miner. And there's a whole story uh, in that uh, title as well uh, in the early part of the book. Um, If we get time, Grace, I'll get you to talk us through that. But let's talk about this um, just briefly, if we can, this chapter of your life in your late teens. It's probably not a surprise to many that you just wanted to get away. And you lived overseas about six years in the US, but traveled um, pretty widely through that. Met some incredible people, did some amazing things uh, along the way. You know, you were an illustrator, an artist. You worked on a marijuana farm for a little while. You came into the orbit of people like John Cleese and Martin Gore from Depeche Mode. Like, what a what a time. Did you, did you get that um, satisfaction um, that you were, you know, you were obviously seeking something? Um, going overseas at that time of your life, did did you did you get what you went for? Oh look, I I mean I I've never thought too too far ahead. Like I just really I mean that and that epitomizes the um, the life of a survivor. I think is that you know uh, one doesn't have the luxury of of necessarily of time to 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 think. Um, through one instead has to to feel um, their way through a, an existence that is intensely um, instinctive um, and intuitive um, in some ways, and sometimes in, intuition is um, serves us well, and other times it doesn't. And when it's um, you know when it's also hampered by by trauma um, that 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 I talked about before as being sort of you know quite beastly 
um, and unpredictable. Um, you know, it, it it's yeah, it, it can be really hard. But um, you know, in in some ways, you know, it was, you know, I I had the space uh, that anonymity affords one uh, to to process some things. But in others, you know, I was a I moved there when I was 18. I moved there alone and I only knew one person um, and, uh, you know, contrary to what some of the um, media have painted of me as being this, like, you know, really privileged rich kid, uh, um, that wasn't actually the case. Um, you know, both both of my parents worked very hard from their, their um, res- both of them come from working class family, families and work their way up. Um, to, to sort of, you know, the, the middle classes, um, my, my, my father being a, a public high school teacher until he retired and my, my mother being in the end a broadcaster who actually made less than my father did, um, Incredible. as a, well, she, I mean, cause it was Tasmania, <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, as a, as a, as a broadcaster, but now actually works as a youth worker with residential, um, kids in residential care. Um, but you know, what, what, what afforded me that experience of moving overseas was that before more information came to light about this um, perpetrator of of the child sexual abuse against me, about his um, misconduct, which actually interestingly extended beyond the sexual misconduct. You know, he was um, using the school's resources to conduct his own Amway business, which is a pyramid scheme, and all these other, you know, inappropriate behaviours. Before information came to light about the extent of all of this, um, you know, uh, you know, abuse of power, if you will, um, to sum it up, um, my parents, rightly so, um, you know, took out civil action and, um, you know, a, a five-figure sum that would have equated to about a teacher's salary um, was uh, was actually awarded to them. And after, you know, the lawyer's fees were taken away, um, uh, you know, that was what enabled me for a couple of years to live in the United States. And I just went to a community college. So not one of the, you know, like public colleges over there, the four-year colleges, but just to a two-year community college and to live um, in the United States. And then afterwards, you know, I had to support myself, you know, working um, uh, and, um, you know, like just in, you know, just jobs like retail mm. jobs yep. um, and stuff like that. And, um you know, it was, it was the epitome of the starving artist lifestyle. You know, at one point I was living in, a um, uh, the corner of a, of a bedroom, um, or sorry, the corner of a kitchen. My bedroom what literally took up the entire space of, of, it was, it was my bed and, um, you know, like a couple of, um, like a, like I had a, my, my desk was next to that and my, my, my door was a Japanese divider, but I didn't, I didn't really mind that because I shared, um, an apartment at the time, a, a, a studio apartment with a painter, um, who was about 30 years old at the time I would have been in my, um, early twenties. I think it was like 20, 21. And, uh, you know, he was an oil painter and, you know, we would just sit there in this sort of like, you know, perfect sort of symbiotic kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, we, I described it recently as, as we were, you know, still lives in motion and there were like unfinished and finished canvases. There were, you know, it was the smell of work in progress, you know, oil paints and, um, you know, media and just, it was like art books on art. And, um, yep. he had all these plants as well that just sort of like, you know, weaved in and out 
through everything and um, it was at the top of um, Douglas Street in Echo Park and so it, it, it was on a bit of an incline that intersected with Sunset Boulevard and so as difficult as it was to, you know, because to, to survive in Los Angeles, unless you have a lot of money, you really are just scrounging. But that sort of adds to it, I suppose. And when you're young and you have that resilience, um, that's part That's part of it. That's part of the motivation, you know. And I don't know, like, I don't know what I was, was doing there, um, you know. And I talk about, I'm very open and honest. I talk about in the book, you know, that Los Angeles especially does market to people who were like me, you know, and whether they had the the same sort of... Searching for something. Well, whether whether they had the same sort of trauma, I don't know, but there were certainly a lot of people who had a void to fill and, and, you know, and so I eventually did actually leave Los Angeles because when I moved, when I moved to California though, I didn't actually live in Los Angeles. I ended up there, you know, by pure happenstance because I went, I actually went over there to study... I didn't know what I really wanted to do. Um, I'd always had an interest in um, like the theatre, not so much in, in film, but the theatre. I because I love the, I love that in the moment sort of raw um, energy that you get with an with an audience that you can't capture and you can't recreate on film. Um, I love stand up. Um, I'd always loved. Um, to make people laugh. I can see you doing stand-up, actually. I did a bit. Of, I did a bit in, in <laughs> Melbourne Comedy Festival. It doesn't yeah. pay very well, but I no. love. I love. I just. I, I love that. I love yeah. the um, that instant connection that you have. Yeah, yeah. And, and and it's it's um it's very pure. Um, yeah. you know, because laughter is something you cannot force. Like you can't force someone to laugh. Like they're either going to laugh or they're not. And it's also for me one of the most I think genuine forms of, um you know, uh, uh, yeah, um, communication with, with people and sharing that moment of joy. Um, and you know, I, I also wanted to study, like I studied history, I studied American history in America, which was really interesting, you know, and I studied, I, I did a bit of German over there cause I'd always, my, my stepfather, he, um, you know, he was born in Australia, but his parents, one of his parents was, um, um, his father was German, but, uh, um, and his mother, um, came from a German-speaking enclave in Romania. Um, she was a um, she was a, a Christian refugee from the Second World War, and you know I studied um, I, stu- I studied astronomy. I studied you know I studied all these different all things these different and things. just sort of yeah. like really just got out of my head, if you yeah. will. And you know I studied I, I I studied to be a yoga teacher and really just you dabbled. Call me a dabbler. And 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 that was. Um, you know, and I also had this bizarre experience, which is, which was the most powerful example of how you cannot, no matter how far you go, you cannot escape your your past, and you have to learn to manage it in a way. And that is like the first. So the, I did English um, one hundred and one, um, and this was you know six months after I I finished high school, and I moved you know halfway across the world, literally, um, and the first text that we were supposed to study. Now, granted, I didn't study it, um, but, I, and I, but I remember holding it in my hand. It was called um, Disgrace, and it was written from the perspective of a South African professor who sexually abuses one of his students and doesn't think he's done anything wrong. And you cannot make this shit up. Wow. You can't make it up. And I just remember thinking... That is and I, that's spooky. You know, and I I remember having to tell the English professor, who was a man, you know, and again, nothing wrong with that, 
But I just remember having to tell him and I remember standing outside the temp classroom on the grass and I just remember being like, you know, my my words were getting all jumbled up and I remember telling him, you know, oh, look, I'll study anything for this. And I did. Um, I ended up studying um, a, uh, a different text, which was um, a, a documentary called The House I Live In. And I remember sitting in the classroom, watching it on this tiny laptop with headphones on, while the rest of the class watched the film version of Disgrace on the big screen. And you can't, again, some metaphors just write themselves. You cannot. Like, and I just, uh, you know, mm. I just got on with it. And it was just, it was just like this, you know, and I just, I, like I, people, people say to me, you know, that, like I've heard people project a lot of things about my experience, about my pain, about how they don't feel sorry for me or anything like that. And I, I don't expect that. That's, that people say, oh, you know, she must have, she must have realised and she must have had this strength back then and she must have, like, you know, when she was a kid, she must have realised this grooming and how it could have taken her so long and blah, 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 blah. Do you know where I found my strength? I earned my stripes when I was a kid who moved to another country when I was 18 and I, like, Yeah, like there were there were so many moments like that, and like there was no like I didn't I didn't have any family over there. I just if like if like and like doesn't maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal or anything like that, but like yeah, you know, like there were just some moments like that where it was just like you've just got to you just got to swallow it and you just got to move on because there's nothing you can do about this. I mean, I could have walked out, I could have, but I was just like. Life is just like this. Yeah. Life sometimes is just shit and you just got to like, you know, like it's going to keep, it's going to be, it's going to keep, keep being like this and, you know, like you either. You got to work with it. You got to work with it. And like, there's nowhere, I can, there's like either I turn away and like I find it somewhere else or I just go, nah, like mm. I'm going to stand up and own this and reframe it and reclaim it because you know, such is the experience of grooming that, like, you know, pedophiles, they co-opt pop culture all the time. Like, this man made me watch The Graduate and all this sort of stuff like that. And The Sound of Silence, he literally played The Sound of Silence, which underscored my experience of child sexual abuse. And they want us. They want us to be quiet. They want us to be silent. They want us to not talk about this stuff. They want us. They want to own all these tools of grooming and they want to operate in secrecy. Yeah. And I am obviously determined to shatter that You're myth. done with that. And so sometimes, well, just, sometimes when I want to hype myself up, you know what I do? I play the sound of silence and I go, nah, I make that my bitch. Well, silence is certainly not what you're about now, Grace. Um, no, the no. Grace Tame Foundation um, is one of the things that you're obviously heavily involved with and passionate about now. Just to finish off, can you tell us um, – what this foundation is about and what your goal is. Well, well, yeah, we established the creatively named Grace Tame Foundation on the 10th of December 2021. And, you know, our, our overarching goal is to create a future free from um, the sexual abuse of children and others. And uh, we want to drive that by, by creating, um, you know, education and legal reform across the nation and, you know, where possible, um, uh, the rest of the world. 
Uh, also within our remit is is survivor legal support. So we've funded um, over 50 cases so far um, that would have otherwise not seen legal support. And uh, we have a broader campaign running at the moment, which we've called the Harmony Campaign, um, and that is to achieve greater consistency between the states and territories on sexual assault legislation. Sexual assault legislation is a state-based issue. Now, if you step back and look at the eight jurisdictions across Australia, currently sexual assault is, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's pretty inconsistent, the legislation, and that is something that benefits perpetrators who are, you know, especially of child sexual abuse, particularly calculating criminals. It's a particularly sophisticated crime. And although that might not seem like uh, a big issue, it, it is, you know, when you consider that some of these perpetrators or, well, actually um, many of them are networking criminals. Um, they often factor um, the legislation into their um, their crimes. Um, uh, you'll get criminals who are um, so good at what they do that they will walk just alongside the black letter of the law so that they they, can they, get away can't, with it. they can't get caught. Yeah. They, they get away with it. And also there's no reason, there's no logical argument for why justice should look different in different places, especially for when you consider, you know, children who are experiencing, um, you know, technically a life sentence of trauma. And, for example, you know, we've got two different ages of consent and it's not necessarily my place to say that one is better than the other. It's just that there's no logical argument why we should have two. And if we want to look like... And, we'll, and we should take this issue seriously as a nation, we should have, you know, a consistent approach. Um, I think that's a really powerful message to send. Now, on the 12th of November last year, I addressed the annual meeting of Attorneys General and I, you know, came, I approached that with, um, you know, considering that like I, I do stand on the shoulders of giants and there have been many survivor advocates in this space who've been working for decades upon decades calling for similar messaging. And, um, you know, I shared my, my story as just one example, um, you know, in a, in a diverse and intersectional community. And, you know, I, I referenced, um, you know, reasons why, for example, um, we should not use the word relationship to describe, um, you know, child sexual abuse in legislation and, um, you know, why we should have a consistent definition of sexual intercourse as well because that's something that is inconsistent, inconsistently defined. And, um, you know, I put it to the attorneys that we um, should have uh, uh, more consistent legislation between the states and territories. And then um, in August this year, I received a letter from the current Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, uh, who announced that there will be a review of the legislation, yep. which is amazing. So yep. that's something that's happening. Progress. Yeah. It's a slow yeah. moving beast, but well, uh, if anyone can push it along, Grace. I, mean, I know that you'll be very much a part of that conversation. That's an unprecedented yeah. move, though, yeah. to have the um, attorneys yeah. general getting together and and actually um, doing a review of the legislation yeah. um, and moving towards greater consistency. And mm. we've already had a an actual change in legislation. We've had a law reformed in the ACT to remove the word relationship from the crime, uh, the offence name, 
um, and the legislation body. So yeah. in the ACT, it is now called the persistent sexual abuse yeah. of a child. Um, and that is thanks to the um, the campaign efforts um, that we're running through yeah. the Grace Tame Foundation. So that's Well, well awesome. done on the progress yeah. so far. And congratulations to uh, on your book, Grace Tame, The Ninth Life of a Diamond Miner, uh, your memoir. Uh, a fascinating read, Grace. Congratulations. Um, thank you so much for coming in uh, and sharing your insights and your experiences with us. Um, it's much appreciated. Thank oh, you. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Tim. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.